This is the Mouse Podcast, episode four for November 2017. I'm your host, Jason C. McDonald. This week, I continue last podcast discussion with lead content developer Ann McDonald and second assistant lead content developer Ali Jensen about introducing and developing characters and stories. Later, I'll be joining second assistant lead developer Bo Bullweiler and Inari project manager Sergio Ramirez as we discuss the wild adventure of inheriting code from previous developers. Mousepaw Media is powered by open-source software like Fabricator, a cohesive and powerful collection of web-based development and collaboration tools. More information is available at facility.com. That's P-H-A-C-I-L-I-T-Y dot com. with Mouse Paw Media, and I'm here with Annie and Jason McDonald. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so today we are covering the rest of what we promised that we'd cover in the last podcast, more about character development. So we talked about introducing characters directly and introducing characters indirectly, but how can we tell when it's appropriate to introduce them directly or indirectly? Well, it all depends on the story and what the story needs. Um, in the Horseradish Creek Gang, Digger is an important character who will appear in upcoming stories, but who has a relationship with both of the um, Horseradish Creek Gang main characters, Sineo and LC. So showing elements of these relationships helps give the story depth. So we give an indirect introduction to him and Mayathel's Island Mystery, and then in Winds of Change, when Elsie is going back home and realizing that he's been gone a month, and uh, he didn't tell Digger he was going anywhere, and his friend is probably going to make life very interesting for him when they meet again. So he's hoping to bribe him with an Ubibit model. Um, so here's hoping yeah it can also be helpful to indirectly introduce a character if you want to uh perhaps control the reader's view of that character or at least guide it um and you see this a lot as a mechanic used in mystery stories for any age group because remember a story is almost invariably told through the eyes of a particular character so with a direct introduction you are seeing the character as they are uh, more often than not. But with an indirect introduction, you're instead meeting the character through the eyes of another character, which can mean that some of the information may not be entirely accurate or could be something known specifically and only to that character. Like with Digger, um, we know that there's more under the surface than than just the shyness, but we can only know that because Elsie and Sineo know that. Well, um, Sineo doesn't know it quite yet because he's new to... Watercrest Village. But he will know it. He as... will know it, but Elsie's known the Tazavak all his life, so he knows that that shy uh, persona is merely a cover. Right. <laughs> and then if you look at, say, uh, my mystery series, Noah Clue, and I will indirectly introduce uh, characters, especially ones important to the mystery, because I'm hoping to guide the reader's assumptions about this character uh, very Agatha Christie style. Agatha Christie does this a lot. She will introduce a character 
in a passing mention from another character with hopes of making us like, dislike, trust, distrust, um, whatever, this character before we meet them. So you can use it to steer a reader's conclusions about a character. Well, it's like when Vervain Othello shows up um, in uh, Winds of Change, um, Elsie refers to him as Mr. Hyphenated. Vervain-Othello, Oleander-Watercress. Yes, so you can tell that he doesn't have a whole lot of regard for this wannabe cousin by the way he speaks about him, that he just does not like this guy, and you find out later why. But then, too, like with Marneo, when he's when he is introduced uh, indirectly in the beginning of um, Athos Island Mystery, you get the understanding that he's somebody that is an uncomfortable being to to have around, and you you so you're you're waiting and you're wondering, okay, so is he going to meet him this summer, or is he not going to be able to go on his trip? And so when he does end up going to Athos Island, you're thinking. Okay, so what is Marneo going to do? Because most people have cousins or friends or whatever that just really get under your skin. And you don't want to spend time with them, but you're forced to do so. You have no choice. You have no choice. But in in dealing with Marneo, we see Cineo grow. And that's one of the main things with the characters in your story. Your main characters have to show growth. And I think secondary characters can show growth in the main in two ways, either as what's referred to as a yardstick. You know, you have an excellent example of a perhaps a stable character or a wise character, and you see the main growing to be more like that character, growing to achieve the same things or similar things. Or you can, or, you know, conversely, you can see someone who is irresponsible and maybe the main character has a lot in common with, and then they grow out of that friendship. Uh, because one wants to change and the other does not. But then, perhaps in a greater extent, secondary characters help the main character grow just by being a, like I talked about last last podcast, a destabilizing influence in that world. The character has their world the way they like it, um, and they're maybe not wanting to address or don't think they need to address a particular topic until that character shows up and turns their entire world inside out in some way or another, like the Flat Tail Boys. <laughs> because Cineo and Elsie think they can handle whatever odd job comes their way until they meet um, four, was it three or four? four? Four. little preschool boys who are just... Nightmares. Did you absolute that? terrors, and they're supposed to babysit them in, in, in an in absolutely ridiculous situation. And so... It forces them to grow because they're having to deal with these really annoying twerps of, of, of kids. Mirror images of each other. Two sets of twins. That's a nightmare to begin with. <laughs> Their mother is real precious, though. You can see where they get it yeah, from. Yeah, really. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, to have, have your characters, um, any character that you bring into the story needs to somehow move the plot forward now speaking of moving the plot forward i know that you guys like winds or horseradish creek gang is a series it starts out with my Anto's island mystery then goes to wind of change why is it important to introduce or reintroduce your main characters in each book because 
for one, um, it's easy to forget what a character looks like. Um, so it's good to sprinkle um, descriptions in. But then two, um, you may have readers that pick up the second or third or fourth book and they've never read the other books, so they don't know what the characters look like. Going outside of our own writing, I think an excellent example of this is the World According to the Humphrey series by Betty G. Burney, uh, which is an entire series of books uh, written from the perspective of a classroom hamster. We, we read these books every year. And um, in each book, she reintroduces all of the characters in question, and almost imperceptibly at times, because you have Humphrey mentioning to the reader through some, some thought that passes through his mind that he is the classroom hamster. So we now know, okay, he's in the class, but he's not a student. He's the classroom pet. And then you meet Og the Frog, his next door neighbor, who is a green frog who makes an unusual boinging sound. Uh, and then Mrs. Brisbane, the teacher. And so he reintroduces, she reintroduces the characters um, as they appear in the story just by dropping little facts about them, little things that make them unique. And so if you haven't read the story, you're not lost. If you haven't read the series, rather, you're not lost. But if you have read the series, then it at least brings to mind who is this character again and um, why are they here and what's unique about them? And, oh, that's right, AJ's the one that's loud and Say is the one that's very quiet. And so we are reminded of these things that we might have forgotten since the last book. Right. Um, in Winds of Change, Mayato um, Sally Mystery is told from Sineo's point of view. Winds of Change is told from LC's point of view. So that gives you a whole different view of what's going on, his take, because he's visiting a culture that's not his own. And I want to read uh, the introduction for this character for, for book two. The Atokian culture enthralled the young Raka. The Atala tribe had embraced him as one of their own despite his differences. Their wholehearted acceptance almost made him wish he could transform his wild honey-colored fur into sleek brown and exchange his cotton ball tail for a long, powerful one. Small, nimble feet designed for silent travel would be nice, too. As he bounded towards Seal Cove, his large feet slapped the mossy pathway beneath the tropical forest canopy. Anyone could hear him coming from miles away. Oh, well, at least he wouldn't be late. That's the fun thing about writing that series with you, actually, because um, Anne can get inside the head of Sineo very well. Um, she can get, get in both characters, so can I, but Sineo seems to be the one she's able to really write from the perspective of. And it's funny, you know, how that introduction worked out, because I wish I could write as Sineo very well, because I like Sineo and I love the Atokian culture. And if I were in, if I were to pick... Um, a race to be in that world, I would want to be a Tolkien, much like L.C. wants to be a Tolkien. But I can get into his head better for whatever reason. And so more often than not, we take, we kind of alternate who's lead writer on the stories. If it's Snails, you wind up taking it and writing it primarily. And I'm and I'm looking over your shoulder, making suggestions, um, whereas I'm usually the lead on L.C.'s books. So, you, Annie, you relate to Suneo, and Jason, you relate to Elsie. What makes a character relatable to you? Wow. Um, Suneo's very pr pragmatic, but um, he's very passionate about specific things. And he's not afraid to try new things. Um, and he's a diplomat. 
I, I don't know how much of a diplomat I am. I try to be, but um, I'm a compliant kind of person normally, unless I'm in situations where it's life-threatening or, you know, something along that line. I try to be compliant. Sunil tries to be compliant, um, and I think that's why one of the reasons why I don't, I really don't have a problem understanding him or why he's seeing things, but also to um, family background. Um, you know, I have a Native American ancestry, and I've always related to the Native American even before I knew I could, I could tell something. I could just relate to them. We'd be watching the Cowboys and Indians, <laughs> the shows when I was a kid, and my mom would be rooting for the Cowboys. I was always rooting for the Indians. Um, except for when they were murdering, then yeah, I wasn't so yeah. happy about it. But, you know, I felt like the, the Native Americans got a, a raw deal. And I, I just, I felt that very keenly. And uh, given that Saneo's a Native, I can understand some of the things that that he feels. The and, loss of culture motif, for right. example, that runs through the series. Yeah. And, yeah, you, you, you can sense injustice. And you don't like injustice, but... While you're not afraid to tackle something if necessary, you prefer not to rock the boat unless it's your last option. Right. Plus, Sunil's father is in law enforcement. And in my younger days, I used to work alongside the police in a volunteer job as a liaison between them and street kids. So I can I can think along that line. And uh, Sunil growing up in a law enforcement home, I can relate to things a whole lot easier on on the flip side lc is um he is uh, a raka which is a culture kind of kind of somewhat modeled after kind of the scottish irish kind of culture um and i am actually one 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 piece of my heritage that um, i got from my dad as opposed to my mom annie um is is scottish irish so that's a big part of my culture and i'm very proud of being a native american as well being mohawk indian but um, being Scottish Irish is, is it's a big thing for me, and so um, I can identify with LC's cultural viewpoint um, a little differently. But LC is more of the kind that he will he will create more of a fuss if necessary to solve a problem. That that's that's more of his thing because of the family he grew up in. The only way to make a change in his family was to make a fuss. And if you stayed quiet and compliant, then that would totally be uh, exploited. And so he learned how to make noise in a way that got things done. Not in a not in a petty sort of way, but just noise with a purpose. And well, he got that from his dad, who has yeah. had to keep this entire clan together Well, he's the forever, mayor. His, his the father's mayor. the mayor. And Elsie um, doesn't really start making waves until after he goes to Mathos Island. And then he, he, he starts to see things differently. And uh, his grandfather's racist, and Elsie never was, and he couldn't understand it. And now that he's, he's spent a month with another culture and seen the wonderful things about them, he has more of an appreciation for other, other cultures. And he cannot, he cannot abide his grandfather's way of looking at things anymore, and he won't stay quiet now. Right. So he tries to be respectful, but right. he won't. He won't take it. Yeah, because down. he yeah. now he now sees. As soon as he sees the problem, then he no longer is happy leaving it um, there. Another aspect of uh, relatability is um, behavioral insight. 
um, for those that have grown up in uh, families with uh, more than one child, um, brothers and sisters can be really annoying. And one of the things that we have in here, LC is basically a an only child, which Jason's an only child. Um, there are really good reasons for that. <laughs> it's like having 30 people in one body. I, 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 I didn't. I, I couldn't deal with any no, more than that. No, that would be scary. That would be really scary. But um, Cineo has has um, three siblings. I grew up with with six siblings, so I can understand, um, you know, some of the conflict. Um, and Cineo's got conflict within his own family um, because his sister Shanidri, who used to be a really good friend of his, is now a teenager and. Um, he doesn't like what she's turned into. She's very hormonal. <laughs> <laughs> she's very grumpy. Um, let me read a, a scene. This gives you um, uh, insight into Shanidri, but also from, this is from Sunil's point of view. Um, they're sitting around the dining room table with this first, first description. Shanidri flicked her small round ears as she sliced another roll in two. Sineo and I are good babysitters. We could help watch the little ones and carry some of the luggage. Their father frowned. I recall an incident just this week, Missy, when you were supposed to be home babysitting, but you left Sineo to fill in for you while you took off with your friends. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, you start getting the sense that she's a little bit on the irresponsible side, which of course comes out with the suitcase incident oh, well, the, which yeah, I, this, yeah later on there's another part with the suitcase the suitcase plays a huge role it is a character all its own in in yeah in Island mystery um this is a later scene bandit trotted up the steps carrying his largest rawhide bone Sineo's mother came out of the hallway where is your sister it's almost ten Sineo grunted Probably still trying to cram pack everything she owns into that one suitcase. Heaven help us if it explodes. I heard that, Shinidri growled from the top of the stairs. Move, stupid mutt. What a grouch. Sineo glanced up as Bandit dropped his bone and scrambled down the steps out of Shinidri's way. Look out! The words died on his lips as his sister stepped on the bone. She fell forward onto her suitcase and belly surfed down the stairs. Shanidri in the overstuffed bag thudded to a stop on the floor. It's it's funny when when inanimate objects become characters in stories, and it does happen a lot because it's um, I'm I'm reminded out of the blue of a movie called um, Trouble with Angels, uh, <laughs> Haley Mills, and the the boiler in that story is its own character it has dialogue just these little hisses and bumps and whatever that you know you would imagine an old boiler in a big building make but there's actually this this bit of a rivalry going on between the boiler and the reverend mother throughout the film including one scene that bears striking resemblance to a nonverbal argument in uh in about you know about two-thirds of the way through the film so if you have something that seems to be playing a, a huge role in the story but it's not a character it's fun to to amplify the parts of that inanimate the qualities of that inanimate object that make it so relatable 
you know, everyone's got that one thing in their life that just has taken on a life of its own and, and you just want to chuck it out of a window. Well, and that suitcase, too, provides a foil for Shinidri and a reason for Saneo to tease her. Because, you know, here in an earlier scene that I'm not going to read, you know, he's got to take certain things for his coming of age ceremony. So he needs more than one bag. And she has all of the luggage in her room and she is literally taking everything out of her closet and she's filling all the suitcases. And that poor suitcase. <laughs> I just feel so bad for her. It's it. like she's told she can't have all the suitcases, so then she's really angry and she's flinging things and she's determined to wear something different every day during the 30 days. Because that she's in gonna, that phase. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's got to look look different and Sunil's like I'm not worried people love me the way I am and she flings something at his head how many of us have had this kind of thing happen in our own families we may love our siblings but they can really get on our nerves a lot of a, a, a ball of socks you know at somebody's head because they're just bugging you just go away already yeah it's it's true and that does provide a relatable situation. And why is it so important for have, for characters to have relatable situations? Well, relatable situations are necessary because there's only really one or two reasons why a reader is going to keep reading a book. Either it is so interesting and so unusual that they want to keep reading, like you know, you're like if you're in a fantasy world and you just want to find out. Okay, so the, the the tree stump can talk. What else is going to what else is going to start conversing with me? Uh, but aside from exploration, if you're working with um, something set in you know, the real world or some form of it, you know, even though this is another world, the Horsefish Creek Gang, it feels so similar to ours that it's not the world itself that draws the reader in so much as it's the characters and the situations they're in. So you need to give the reader something that they can go, oh, I feel you. I have been there. I remember when my sister did such and such and she, you know, we were moving and she had 15 boxes in her room just, you know, cramming all of her clothing in because she didn't want to give it any of it away. So you you provide these little things that a reader can go, I've been there. I've done that. I know what you're talking about. And that keeps them reading because now they feel connected to the story. I think that's why I like the Ramona Quimby series by Beverly Cleary. Because as a little boy, I was Ramona. I felt things and I felt them with all the intensity I could muster. And the world, I couldn't wait to see what happened next in life. But injustice or perceived injustice, that's always a fun one, just got under my skin and just, just, darkened my whole world and so to see Ramona reacting to things in particular ways reminded me so much of of me I keep reading because I'm like yes I know how you feel and I wonder how it's going to work out for you I want I want justice now for for you because I feel you know I'm feeling for you right now I'm feeling that sense of wrongness about this situation well, I know with the Horseradish Creek Gang, uh, we had one reader who, believe it or not, I thought people would be relating only to the two main characters, but he related to one of the secondary characters in a very unusual way. And when I asked him why, he's like, well, because 
that was me. I can totally see me. I was there. I was the one that was in the middle of the water and waiting for rescue because that's the kind of stuff I did at that age. And my brothers would have to bail me out every time I turned around. So I could really, it's like, wow, that's that's really cool. But then one of the other relatable things, um, we have all of our interns uh, watch videos from... Um, my Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. And... For anyone who just screamed in agony, it is nothing like the original series at all. This is a completely different show. You can barely recognize it versus the insipid, candy-coated, whatever that was in the 1980s. No, I was singing about malls and shopping. <laughs> no, or boys, boys, <laughs> boys, boys, no. This is an actual story. And one of the main reasons it took off is because people were watching this and they're finding things that they can relate to with these characters. It's like, yes, I've had that one friend that was just so fussy about everything, and I just wanted to smack that one upside the head. You are Twilight Sparkle. I am Twilight Sparkle. Yes. (laughs) Anyone who's seen the series will know this character. She's the main character of the series. She is um, very pragmatic, learns everything from books and OCD to the ends of the earth, which is me in yes, a nutshell. Yes, because he does. He rearranges books. He rearranges videos. He rearranges. I'm facing CD. product in stores. I'm going through the stores, lining, <laughs> lining the, and then you are Pinkie Pie. That's Allie. Uh, yeah, Allie's. I, for all you listeners, I do happen to be wearing pink. No, this was not planned, but I am wearing a, a very nice pink sweater. I like yes, it. it is very lovely. Well, thank you. Um, and actually, when these two told me that I was Pinkie Pie, because I had seen part of the series already, uh, it is required, but even before that, I had seen some of it, just to see what people were talking about, because I had a lot of friends say, oh, this is really, really good. And then I couldn't stand the songs because it was just too much for me. And especially Pinkie Pie, who goes off singing, like, the second episode, was it? Like, just spontaneous, <laughs> instead of spontaneous combustion, it was spontaneous singing. And I'm like, no, anything with that. Oh, well, that's I nothing mean, like you. You only break into random silly songs about mm, once a day? Mm, little Fair shark. Point. Baby shark. Oh, oh yeah. don't even go there. I'll stop there. I promise, listeners. <laughs> Well, anyway, so I just didn't see the relation at all. Speaking about feeling like you relate to a character, I didn't feel like I related to her at first because my first exposure to her was she was kind of rude. She would stop people from talking, and I actually kind of pride myself in being polite and letting other people talk. At the same time, uh... I, like, the, these two here were just so insistent, like, no, you are definitely Pinkie Pie. I'm like, hmm, no, I bet she's not as obsessed with food as I am. I can talk about food forever. <laughs> and they're like... Surprise. You have a lot of watching to do. Let's show you a few things. <laughs> yeah, food, the filing system. Oh, yeah. We finally figured out she's Pinkie Pie with social boundaries because th- then the question was, okay, well, uh... You know, Pinkie Pie's an extrovert, and, and, and Allie's, you, you call yourself, what, a, a, um, an ambivert? Ambivert. Like, I can be extroverted or introverted. Just depends on the day. But anybody who watches the series comes to realize Pinkie's not a true extrovert. Yes, she wants to meet everybody, but she's not necessarily going to spend all of her time with necessarily everybody she meets. At the end of the day, she's very, very happy if you just leave her alone in her kitchen with her alligator and her cookbook. Unless there's a party going on. Unless yes. there's a party going on. 
So she, she she's a she, pony with a mission. Parties are her mission because she well because bringing happiness, yeah, bringing is, happiness which is which is yeah. where the similarity. pretty much like and the more I saw Pinkie Pie, so this is why exposure is so important for relatability, relatability as well. Is because if you're not exposed to a character very often or what they're capable of, what they can do, what they won't do, their likes and dislikes, you won't be able to relate to them at all. So at first, I didn't see a whole lot of that. I just saw this really loud pony who sang a lot. <laughs> and that, that I didn't feel was me. But as I got to know her more through seeing more of the series, I, I just can't deny it anymore. She has, Jason mentioned the filing system. I write notes about everything. So does she. Who knew? And <laughs> and she obviously has her own notation system, given that score sheet. Oh. Without numbers, that was... That was interesting. But I think I think it says a lot about the series and life in general. Characters aren't... You don't meet the character at their deepest level the first time you meet them. Definitely. You meet them gradually, and all characters and all people look like caricatures when you first run into them until you get to know them. Because we all have that social surface. We all have that level that, you know, we're keeping people at bay and this is the part of my personality I want to show the world. This is who I would like to be. And so we show our ideal selves. And as you get to know people, you get to realize, okay, that's their ideal, but they haven't met it. And they're very, very much more complex underneath the surface. So, and that's that's very true. Regarding um, My Little Pony, um, we actually have ponies for, well, at least My Little Pony characters for every member of our company. Everybody has. It's a running joke. It's a, it's a pony for everybody. Although we had a Draconicus. Um, one of our guys is a Draconicus. I mean. And we, and we do have the Time Lord as well. Um, and Dr. I'm Boots. Applejack. I am definitely Applejack. Um, uh, more mature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that most of us are, are the more the mature more... versions. Exactly. Yeah. So. So we're going to have to go to part three um, for... There's just for a lot August. to talk about with characters. Characters have character. Welcome to the welcome to the world of writing. Characters run our lives. Apparently our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and that's true. And thank you to characters for joining me today. And to Absolutely. the rest of you, have a good one. I'm here with Bo Volweiler, second assistant lead developer, and Sergio Ramirez, the project manager on the Anari graphics engine. Hello. Hello. So you guys have both um, come into the company uh, a little later in the development timeline. There's a lot of developers that have come before you guys. Mm -hmm. So you wound up inheriting code, which is something I've haven't done a lot of. I always wind up writing my own code. I don't usually get it from another developer. So this is something I'm not overly familiar with. What has that been like, um, starting on, working on code that, that someone else originally was working on and, and handed off to you? Um, it, it can be tricky sometimes. I feel like a lot of people think that if you write something and it compiles and it works, that you can go back and look at it and know exactly what's going on. But even if you study it carefully, I feel like there's times where I haven't really realized what's going on in something until I have to go in and change it myself. Yeah, can be a 
definitely a, a little bit of a learning curve uh, before you can start making progress and you know add to the code itself. It takes some time to figure out what was going on pretty much in their heads, you know, when they were writing the code or who they were writing it for, you know, the purpose of the program and, uh, you know, what it's supposed to do. I think that's the, the hardest part to understand um, because the actual code itself, you can just look at it, but you don't know if it's supposed to be doing, um, you know, what was intended from the start. I think that's the trickiest part. So that's kind of that myth of the uh, self-commenting code. People talk about writing self-commenting code as if you, if you write it in the right way, then somehow you can just magically tell what the person was thinking, which I have never found to be true myself. Like I said, I've never inherited code, but I have um, had to read other people's code, um, including when I'm trying to contribute to open source software. Um, it, it, can, it can be... You're right, it can be really hard to tell what they were thinking. I mean, you can tell that, sure, they're looping over a, uh, you know, an array, but why? Why is why are they doing it? Yeah. I think another big thing that I've noticed that I think you could easily overlook is actually variable naming. I know we all try to name them, like, as clear and, uh, I guess, concise as possible, but especially when you're working across multiple like header files and implementation files, even if it's just a counter, sometimes if as someone coming in, having not written it, a variable that's obliquely named can be very confusing. I can't tell you how many times I've encountered the variable X. Yeah. X, Y, N, I, E, I, E, I, O. Yeah, yeah. Or the all-time winner of the worst variable name ever, Foo which we all use when we haven't figured out what to name the thing yet. People have left foo in code before. <laughs> Thankfully, not that often. But Yeah, yeah, you definitely have to um, get used to the naming conventions that the previous developer had. Uh, I mean, there's there should be a standard, of course, but, um, but there's little... I mean, you can't have a standard for every single little thing, so that's definitely tricky. In your guys' experience, what have been some uh, differences between working on code that you started writing versus inheriting it from somebody else? You mentioned that it can be hard to tell what they were doing, but um, what are some other what are some other differences? So, when you get another code base, um, uh, from my experience, um, it's just getting used to the development environment. Uh, I think that's a that's that's huge. Um, for mousepad games, uh, you know, the, you, you made the transition very easy because you have plenty of the, the, the documentation for this. Uh, but for another project uh, that I did in college, uh, you know, they they only had so much time to do, you know, to do their project, so they didn't put as much into documentation. So when we were handed off the project. We didn't know what was going on in their heads, uh, and we had to basically we had to spend uh, a good chunk of the time creating a development environment so that we could run the code on all machines. You know, before I think they were they could only run it in one machine, and I think that's a that's huge when you're inheriting a project, and when you are not, you can I mean you can start with the documentation. I've learned from that experience to 
as I start a new project from this from scratch, I should be documenting, you know, okay, I installed this, you know, I, I, I ran into this issue, every single thing that you run into, because you never know who's going to be helping you later on, you know, you never know how big this is going to get. So and, and also will help yourself later on. I think those are two big differences. How about you, Bo? Yeah, I mean, writing your own code, I think, in a lot of ways, is like a stream of consciousness, especially if you never intend anyone else to see it. Yeah. It's like, I just need this to do this, and I'm going to do it the way that makes sense to me. But working with someone else's code definitely makes you consider who's going to look at it later more. Because I know, at least for me, whenever I look at a new piece of code that I have to work on, it, it for a while, it's like trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole. It's like, I'm going to try this, but I'm not 100% sure it's going to work yet because I'm not completely sure exactly how this is supposed to work so far. Especially when you've taken a project that hasn't been completed yet. Yeah. Because not only do you have to know what it's supposed to do, you have to know at what stage was it you know, abandoned. Is the current objective for the project still the same? Like, is the end, like, for example, is the end syntax the same as when it was last touched? Yeah. Things like that can really uh, trip you up if you think it's supposed to be doing one thing and then it's, you know, the last person to touch it was going in a slightly different direction. Yeah, you you inherited one string, um, which is, you're the third, I think, to handle that code, aren't you? Yes. Right now, actually, I just ran into that because uh, the header file was updated for what I was working on. It was updated to... The, uh, the finished product, but the uh, implementation of it was still existing from before. So right now I'm kind of sorting through what can I still use from the old stuff while making a new file that's aligned with the new standards, I guess. So you not only inherited uh, someone else's code, you handed someone else's refactoring job. Yeah. Have you noticed any big differences between if you're just inheriting code straight versus inheriting you know, the, the task of actually refactoring the code? I mean, is there any really significant differences between the two? I think I would just say I would be more careful refactoring because I don't, I am more afraid to cut things then. Like if this has a job, I don't necessarily want to cut it out. Whereas if I'm going to continue working on something at that point, that's my project and I'm going to have to fix it later, you know, if that makes sense. No, that definitely does. That's, that does sound, uh, it does sound rather terrifying, to be honest with you. Actually, now that I'm thinking about that, too, uh, another thing that's huge is flow of control. In my mind, when I write something, I try to stick like a function where it goes in the overall flow of control, which is not always easy to do. But from a logical standpoint, it's helpful to see that, like, okay, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, more or less, which I think with when I was working on Simple Express, you know, that wasn't in a even a close state of doneness or completion. So, uh, you know, things were in strange places and that made it hard to, at least for me, to conceptualize exactly where things were moving. Sergio, you said something um, kind of interesting a minute ago. Uh, you were mentioning, uh, you know, having to document things just even for yourself. Um, and I think it's really easy for us to overlook that we're all going to wind up handing off code, um, even if the only person we're handing it off to is our future self. Yeah, and um, what Bo said, you know, you may think that you're trying out things, so it might not be worth documenting. And I, I've definitely done that. 
but um, I mean, this was a experience for my senior project, and this is exactly what the previous team had done. And I mean, we probably, I mean, I've done it, and I mean, we had to go back and look at their commits and see where changes were made, see, um, uh, because they were using different frameworks together. They were switching some frameworks out, bringing some back in. And I mean, we had no clue why, you know, what was going on in their heads, you know, uh, why did they get rid of this or why did they, um, you know, the reasons for this. So we, we had to spend time that if they had documented that, maybe we would have understood it quicker. So that that's how I learned to, to start documenting things because uh, even for myself, because yeah, I, I mean, I've, I'm guilty of just, you know, just writing code, you know, okay, I'm going to try this thing out. So it's, I'm not sure if it's going to work, uh, but I think it's still a good idea to document it just so people know, okay, this guy tried this. It didn't work. Uh, why? So we don't do that again and we don't spend time doing that. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, I think we're all guilty of, of that to some extent of not writing documentation. Actually, there was, um, there was something kind of funny on uh, Dev2. Uh, there was a discussion uh, talking about uh, coding horror stories. This was posted on uh, Halloween, which was just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so there was a conversation about uh, real-life horror stories in programming. And somebody, um, actually Ian Bradbury, posted on there. Uh, he said that, uh, and I quote, he said, that time I spent a week deconstructing and documenting a super complex algorithm in C only to find the last line. Return 0. 0.5. Still angry. <laughs> it's like, I, I can't I can't imagine committing code like that, but you know, I think that seems like an extreme version of what you were saying, Sergio, where we're experimenting. We're trying things out, and then we realize it didn't work, and so we just kind of, we either come up with a better solution, or we just hack in you know, a workaround. Workarounds are, it's amazing how many workarounds make it into production code, because people didn't document it was a workaround. Um, and then we wind up just returning 0 0.5 after all of our acrobatics, and wasting who knows how much time, both processor time and, and right, uh, yeah. That hurts just hearing about it. I know. Yeah, that was a that was a kick. That uh, reading through that uh, that dev discussion horror stories. It can be horrifying having to pick up someone else's code. Sergio, though, you touched on something that I think is a, an interesting idea. Where you were saying you were just adding, you know, small notes to a text document. Right. And the way the way that we have things structured right now is, you know, do you want to file a task? Do you want to file a bug? Like I need to ask a question, but right. your your problem almost has to get to a certain size before you go and do that. And even if it's a 10-minute task, that's still of a size that has some gravity to it. Right. I, I feel like it just would be good practice to have a, a text file saved in a project that's just like a scratch pad. Like, oh, I did this, I tried this on this line, this didn't work. Because that doesn't really fit anywhere else. But it might be useful later on, especially if it's not you looking at it. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of why I, I did it. And um, I've been working with uh, mobile development lately, and that, the, I mean, the updates come out constantly. Uh, I mean, just a month ago, 
uh, I was using it, and now it's something that's different. So I, I end up uh, trying to figure out, okay, I installed this, and it's not working, it's not compiling, um, and uh, I end up doing the same things over and over again. Um, so it, it, it and I, I just keep thinking to myself, uh, what if someone was to help me later on? I can cut their time if I were to tell them, okay, you're, you're expected to run into this. So that's kind of why I have the little scratch pad because now I don't, I don't think about coding things just for myself anymore. I I'm thinking of, okay, maybe this gets big. Maybe I'm going to need help later on. So that that's kind of why I, I just started doing that. And then later on, once I, I do have more time, uh, you know, I, I turn it into a, you know, like the markdown language, like in GitHub or, uh, you know, just format it better. But, you know, while I'm working, I can, yeah, just have a little scratch pad. Yeah. That's... Yeah. That, that's a, that, that's actually, I think I'm going to start doing that as well. I know there are times that I will leave comments for myself in the code, um, because obviously we have our commenting showing intent standard where we have to, at least in, in company code, where we always comment what each logical statement is intended to do, because the intention, like you mentioned, Bo, is, is not something that translates to future developers, or actually even to our future selves half the time. But on top of that, I will put special comments in there. Um, I've noticed most IDEs and most um, most linters actually uh, have superb support for three special co code words in uh, comments, and that's note, fix me, and to do. And I will usually uh, create notes in my code as I'm going, like note, uh, I think this could be made to run a lot faster or fix me. I'm really not sure why it's rounding off to the third decimal place here uh, mm -hmm. because then I'm able to jump right to the spot. Um, and I started doing that because um, I know I would write notes for myself on paper about those sorts of things. And I would say, oh, it's line 38. But that doesn't account for when I added the huge algorithm on line 15 and suddenly line 38's become line 127 and I can no longer find the code. So having the inline comments, um, I think having both, having the having the inline comment, but then having those uh, those notes and a scratch pad uh, can be uh, supremely helpful for uh, documenting what it is we're thinking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and going back to that, um, for actually writing code, um, I don't really do that. I just commenting more for that. Uh, I guess I was thinking more about creating your development environment. And um, right now, we're uh, all the tools we use, a lot of them uh, you, you have provided to us. We, we are not using, uh, well, at, at least for Anari, um, we're not using too many other libraries at all. So we don't have to worry about implementing those in the project. So there's no way in the code to put those notes. So I guess I guess I'm talking a lot about that because I've just been spending a lot of time lately just figuring out a, a dev a dev environment for especially mobile development when it, it's changing and you have you have to have it be compatible with all kinds of devices. Uh, you have to have it work on Windows, also uh, link up uh, a Mac to it, and uh, yeah. also for Android. Um, so you have to have different SDKs and you know this uh, it's a mess you know getting all these things uh, installed properly so um, yeah that's that's definitely the part that yeah you're right that's the part we often overlook because we write you're right you know it's compiled so it must be done I have yeah. lost let's see there's one occasion I lost nine months trying to package 
um, software. And then recently, we have a game that is ready to ship. And this is driving me crazy because, and people who are familiar with our company, they've been seeing the ads on our website for Omission. And people are waiting for this game. They've been waiting for this game since August. And I can't deliver it to them yet because I cannot get the code to... Um, I, I cannot get the code to run on other machines. And it's not anything in my code. It's just that Kivi, the GUI library we're using, does not, it, it has a setup file, setup.py. Python libraries and Python projects all have setup.py, which instructs uh, the Python environment on other machines how to get the code running. Um, that's oversimplifying it, of course, but... Um, Kivi has a setup.py, but for whatever reason, the way it was written, you it requires something called Cython, which is fine. There's a lot of things that rely on Cython. Um, but Cython um, has to be installed first. You can't say, you cannot use the, the Python package manager pip and say pip install Cython Kivi. You can't do it. It will fail because Kivi's not able to see the Cython instance that was just installed. And that's, I am coordinating between the, the Kivi developers and the Snapcraft developers at, at Canonical, and I'm trying, and no one can figure out how to fix this thing. And I think that comes down to um, that development environment problem that people haven't, you know, noted how they got things working. And we might have caught this sooner if people had just noticed oh, you have to install it in two commands. You can't install it in one command. All the all the packaging tools use a single pip command, pip install. Um, so development environments are the part we always overlook. I think um, I have I have just spent like a year, like the past year, I have written very little code. I have been documenting our entire development environment because I had to figure out how to get everything working on every machine we could possibly need it to run on, and. Um, I, I haven't written much code because of that, because I had to nail all that down. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think that's definitely the part we overlook is is the development tools. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, I mean we were we were thinking. Uh, I mean, we might be the only ones coding this, but um, yeah, the the time spent initially is definitely worth it. Um, you know, for later developers, they can start coding almost right away uh, so that can definitely uh, it's definitely worth it I think because either you're gonna have to document it or someone else will have to or everyone's gonna have to spend the three to four weeks figuring it out yeah and not only will they have to document it but they will also have to learn the code and if there was no documentation for it uh, it's gonna be even more wasted time for the next developers well not wasted time but more time they have to spend so we were talking a bit ago about about uh, scary parts of, of projects horror stories what is the scariest part of inheriting a project from someone else um especially especially the code part you know what what is the scariest part of, of picking up code that someone else has worked on well um I would say, uh, I mean, the code itself, you can pick up on it usually. Um, it takes a little while, but you can pick up on it. Um, but I guess what's difficult is trying to figure out 
the client's intentions and see what the previous developer has done to satisfy those requirements and what problems they've ran into in their code in order to make, you know, who is going to use the program to see what... Uh, yeah, the, the basically the project specs. Yeah, yeah, basically uh, to see what problems they ran into and how they're going to go about fixing it. Yeah, just uh, just thinking about it, you know, I'm, it's uh, it's that's difficult for sure, especially um, uh, for a project like Canary when, you know, it's it's really hard to wrap over your head from the start because uh, you don't learn this kind of stuff in school, right? So you you have to rely on what other people have done previously from you and then add to that more in order to satisfy you know their requirements and it helps if we know what the requirements were to begin with yeah yeah especially um for an re uh you know you have a i think the only point of reference we had was uh, or we have is adobe flash or adobe animate now yeah but um so now you know, when I first came in, you know, I had no idea. I've never animated anything in my life before. So, so yeah, so it's definitely, that's definitely, I think, the biggest issue, just trying to figure out what the previous developer has done in order to satisfy the requirements and what they have, what, what they haven't been able to. Yeah, you, you, you picked up Anari from uh, Audrey Henry, I think. Um, if I remember correctly, she started the code base. It was her... And actually, I think it was only her because Brian Anders was working on on Punchline, which uh, Punchline something that's so, you know, we ran into that problem with Punchline is the fact that the the um, where he was in the process was was not 100 um, percent clear. And part of it's because it was so complicated. It was hard to document what what it was he was doing. He, he wrote tons of documentation, but it was hard to translate his head onto you know, what he was thinking onto paper and. We can't even hand off punchline to anyone because it's 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 marvelous code, but you know just to read through all of it would is is, is a daunting task. Um, and Stacy was working on the uh, Stacy Carlson was working on the interface for uh, Lightrift. She was designing that, and Jared Hutton was helping do a proof of concept for the GUI toolkit we were using. Um, so Audrey basically wrote that code solo, and then uh, when she announced that she was going to be leaving the company, um, the only one who had ever touched that code in, in any meaningful way was was you, so you wound up kind of getting handed the entire thing. And you had the advantage of actually getting to talk to her. Um, how, how do you think, uh, how do you think that, uh, that, that affected the handoff versus some of the projects where you couldn't talk? Right. Yeah, that, uh, that definitely helped. Um, uh, just uh, for the code itself, uh, it's, I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's good, it's easy, not easy to understand, but it's uh, not as complicated as understanding why, you know, the purpose of it. So that, that trans transition was really good. If I had an issue or I had trouble understanding what she was coding or why she wrote certain code, you know, I could always ask her. So that was always nice. And compared to... Uh, like my senior project, one of the previous developers was around, but I mean, we had to make a, an appointment because he was busy, of course. He was he had a job, so so we didn't really have that much communication. There, we had to figure everything out on our own. So that was a lot of time spent, basically recreating and understanding what they had already done. Bo, you uh, 
you're working on one string right now, obviously, and then before that, and actually still, you're working on Simplex Press, and you inherited both from Jarek. Um, but the funny thing about inheriting one string right now is that the only reason you picked that up is because he's he's out of the office um, for uh, for the next couple of months. So you, unlike Sergio, you can't really just go, "Hey, Jarek, what is this?" Um, so what's what's been the most daunting part of of inheriting uh, those projects? Um, well, I think one thing quick to mention is that even though Jerry Quartz around was working when I was more focused on Simple Express, it had been so long since he had seen some of it that I'd ask a question and he wouldn't be sure, at least not right off the bat, at least. Right. So he hadn't handed off to his future self yet. <laughs> yeah. So that wasn't always a resource, even though sometimes it did help. Um, it's definitely... I think the most difficult thing is when the core of the project is not complete yet. Because you might have some frameworks and you might have a direction, but one thing I don't think we always document so well is exactly how done something is and when things evolve. So when you have a combination of an incomplete project and evolving standards and expectations for the project, you have to go in and realize, okay, like this is working this way right now. But, you know, do we, is this still the way it's going to work? And is it even correct to, to what was supposed to happen originally? So it's easy enough to take existing code that's complete and add features. It's hard to walk into something that's broken and continue to work on it. Absolutely. So um, I guess that brings up then the point that if, if you know, if we're documenting this stuff, if we're, if, and that's all the forms of documentation, that's the, that's the task and bug lists. That's the specifications. That's the design notes. Um, those have to be maintained as we work, um, because if those are allowed to get out of sync, then um, that can make it really hard to pick the code back up, whether it be our own code and remembering what we were doing or someone else's code. Exactly. So um, in the time we've got left here, um, before we wrap this up, if you could just kind of summarize what uh, what considerations should developers um, have um, if they're getting ready to hand off or could potentially hand off code to uh, to somebody else? If someone's going to be picking up the code, what should the what should the developer do to make the transition easier on the person who's coming in? What I think I would do is at least compile just a small file of like what's broken, where can I find standards for this project. You know, how complete is it? Can uh, If I'm using any outside dependencies, like where can I find documentation for that? I think if you just try to compile all of the relevant information in one place, it's not only a resource for you, but it's also a check for the, the previous developer to say, okay, what's relevant here that I, I might not have thought of in a while that someone else might need to see or need access to? Uh, I think uh, having the the specification nailed down, I think that's important because uh, I, I don't think the code itself, uh, I mean, it matters, but I think what matters most is the client or who's going to be using the program. Uh, they need to know what has been done to get there and, and what's being done to get there. I think that needs to be documented because that can always be translated to code. I, I know that's the actual work there, but actually figuring out you know, basically what has been completed and what needs to be done basically to get there um, still. Definitely. And I would I would add in there, um, on top of all that, um, I know that I've seen it's very important that, that we have comments um, showing what it is we were thinking when we wrote the code, what, what our intentions were. And um, 
and then and then like you mentioned earlier Sergio documenting how to get started documenting the development environment because um, all the code in the world won't matter if you can't compile it or if you can't run it and so um, even just when you're putting together what what you're doing just writing down um, okay I, I step one go to this website download this link install it oops hold on that link didn't work so change the link that way you have some steps in the project documentation of how to actually get started developing this I think, I think a lot of open source projects would find their adoption rates would go way up if they would actually do that because there's so many that don't. And so you just look at it going, great, I've got a, I've got a 3.5 gigabyte code base from GitHub and no idea what my development environment's supposed to be. Uh, will someone please help me? <laughs> and then and you're waiting in line in the chat room for days until someone figures it out. So yeah. Yeah, definitely some, definitely some good notes. And I think I'm going to wind up going and setting up uh, uh, handoff pages on all of our uh, all of our project wikis, just kind of a, a template for a you know, status page, so that we can we can actually start implementing some things we were talking about. But uh, yeah, some excellent notes, some excellent ideas. So uh, thanks for thanks for uh, talking with me, guys, and thanks for all your uh, hard work on our uh, projects here at Mouthpop. No problem. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Thanks to Anne McDonald, Allie Jensen, Bo Volweiler, and Sergio Ramirez for joining us today. Our music is At Our Orbit by Revolution Void. It was licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. For this and more great free music, check out the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Distribution of this podcast is made possible by the Internet Archive, a non-profit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, websites, and more. Check them out at archive.org. This podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0. In other words, you're free to download and share. More information at creativecommons.org. The Mouse Podcast is a production of Mousepaw Media, dedicated to creating innovative solutions for education. You can find out more about our company and projects at mousepawmedia.com. I'm Jason C. McDonald, wishing you a wonderful evening.